The title of our series here through 1 Thessalonians is entitled Hopeful Living, and um, it gets that title uh, from the overall theme of this book. Uh, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians um, are epistles, uh, that's what we call them, fancy word for a letter that the Apostle Paul sent to a church. And if you've been with us, you know that Paul planted uh, this church in Thessalonica on his second missionary journey. The Lord laid it on his heart uh, to go out. Uh, he and a guy named Barnabas went out uh, from Antioch, church in Antioch, up near uh, the border of uh, modern-day Turkey and uh, Syria there. Um, and they went out on their first missionary journey, planted a bunch of churches, and then the Lord subsequently, after they had returned, laid it on their heart to go back out on the mission field to strengthen churches that they had planted. And, uh, and so on that particular trip, Paul went with a guy named Silas, and uh, the two of them, uh, as they were ministering, the Holy Spirit led them to go to modern-day Greece. And it was there in that region of modern-day Greece that they planted this church of Thessalonica. Paul was only there for about three weeks. Uh, God, through the work of the Holy Spirit, did a wonderful work. And, um, and so this letter follows after Paul had departed from that church, after they had kind of gotten some traction. Paul writes this letter and the one that follows it that we'll roll right into when we finish First, Thess First Thessalonians, uh, uh, conveniently Second Thessalonians, comes right after it, and we will follow into that as well. But he wrote these letters... Um, to encourage them, and really twofold, to encourage them and to educate them. And, uh, and so as we've seen, if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, we've seen that Paul encourages this church with a greeting of grace and of peace and with the giving of thanks and remembrance. And as he gives thanks and remembrance, he acknowledges three qualities that characterize this young church. Their work of faith, their labor of love, and their patience of hope in Jesus in the sight of God. And Paul goes on to say that the presence of these three traits are the proof that causes him to know that they are the elect of God. Um, why? Well, their, their works are bearing out a genuine faith. Um, I, I didn't have you turn there, and I'll just read it. But uh, in uh, James chapter, chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, um, he says this. He says, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he doesn't have works? Uh, can faith save him? And the idea is, can, can a faith that, that never makes its way from, from your head or your heart to your hands and your feet and to the way you live your life, can, it, does, is that really indicative that you, in fact, are saved? That's the idea that's in view. He says, if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warm and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? It's like, where's the love in that kind of thing? He says, thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And so the idea here is that if you are the elect of God, if you are a child of God, then it, it's going to manifest itself in the way that you live your life. And, uh, and so with this idea, um, we come to uh, 1 Thessalonians today. And, uh, and really what we're looking at here, Paul praising God for how they're living out their faith and that it's proof 
that, that they are in fact uh, a children in the faith. He says, we give thanks to God always for you all, 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 2, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing, and here's, here's what he's remembering, hey, your work of faith, your labor of love, and your patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father, and this causes, Paul says, him to know something. And here it is, verse four. Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. Now that word knowing is key. Um, it means literally to know by perception. And it's written in the present perfect tense in the Greek. And here's the idea. The idea is that the fruit of their faith is active and ongoing. It's not a passive phase. Rather, it's the sustained proof that they are, in fact, the elect of God. Now, let me stop right there because I just hit on a, a, a word that, uh, man, it's the equivalent of pulling a pin on a grenade and just dropping it out there. When we talk about election, people are like, whoa, you know, what's up with that? Um, Election is a key Christian doctrine, and we're going we're gonna to cover today in our text actually four or five different Christian doctrines. And here's what I want you to hear right up here in front. Um, this isn't a history lesson. I'm not going through 1 Thessalonians to tell you about what happened 2,000 years ago to a group of people that you never met and don't know. What I'm here to do is to take you through a book of the Bible which covers key Christian doctrines, and doctrines are essential for you and they're essential for me. Here's why. What you believe inevitably informs how you behave. What you believe will inevitably uh, be, be uh, the, the key influencer to how you behave. And so for you and I to be mature in a relationship with the Lord Jesus, we have to have good doctrine. And thankfully, 1 Thessalonians is chock full of doctrine for us to learn and to grow. And so what Paul touches on here is the key Christian doctrine of election. Now, this is perhaps one of the most misunderstood and debated doctrines in the Bible. Does God choose us? Or do we choose God? Are we elected by God? Or do we have some sort of part to play in the process? And the reason why this is so debated is because um, there's two doctrines that are related to our salvation. You have the doctrine of election and you have the doctrine of free will. And both are biblical, and yet they seem totally contradictory to one another, right? Does God choose us, or do we choose God? And, and if the Bible teaches both, what am I supposed to do? Like, blow, make my head blow up. Like, how do, I, how do I work that out? Let's begin with the doctrine of free will. Throughout the Bible, there's a lot of verses that speak of man's free will, Proverbs 1 speaks of the righteous who choose God and of the unrighteous who reject God. And speaking of the unrighteous who reject God, Proverbs 1.29 says this, that they hated knowledge and they did not choose the fear of the Lord. That word choose in the Hebrew, uh, it means to choose, it means to elect, it means to decide. And the implication is that man has a choice 
in the matter. And Jesus himself alluded to this in one of the most famous scriptures that everybody recognizes, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Two words there that are key, whosoever and believes. That word whosoever literally means anyone and everyone. Anyone and everyone who does what? Who believes. And the word believes means to be persuaded. It means to place your confidence in. It means to trust. It means to commit to. So the implication there seems to, uh, to support and, and affirm that you have to be persuaded. You have to place your confidence in, your trust. You have to make a commitment. That speaks to an exercise of free will. Uh, the Apostle John, he said, to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Again, Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe, and there's that word again, the believe, to be persuaded, to place your confidence in, to trust, to commit to. If you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one, here it is again, believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And there's many other verses that relate to man's free will. You see it in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 19 through 20. You see it in Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7. You see it in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. You see it in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 26. You see it in Revelation chapter 22, verse 17. And, and so there's no escaping the fact that you have a choice in the matter. We see this, this reflected biblically in Acts chapter 2, where Peter, on the day of Pentecost, filled with the Holy Spirit, he gets up and he preaches a message to the multitudes. And, and the whole exchange kind of summarizes in Acts, in Acts chapter 2, verse 40, that tells us with many other words, he testified and he exhorted them. And what did he say to them? He said, be saved from this perverse generation. And the very next verse tells us, then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And so there's an argument, there's a persuasion, there's an exhortation, believe, receive, exercise your free will. Now, having said that, the Bible also firmly teaches the doctrine of election, which is in view here in 1 Thessalonians. As Paul says, look, I see all of these wonderful things that you guys are doing and, it, and, and it bears, it, you're bearing fruit and it's proof to me that you are the elect of God. Doctrine of election. Jesus said this in John 15, 16. He said to his disciples, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Now, Jesus said, I chose you. And the word chose there literally means to pick or to choose for oneself. And it's written in the middle voice and the, and the verb is reflective. So, of course, we all know what that means, right? 
No, here's what it means. The idea of the way that this is written in the Greek, in the middle voice with the verb being reflective, is that God's choosing of us is independent of us. It's by God, it's for God, and it's for his sovereign purposes. Paul told the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, that he, God, chose us in him, in Jesus, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us, another pull the pin, drop the hand grenade uh, word, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his Will. Now, we're going to come back and unpack that verse in just a minute, but listen, understand, God is sovereign and man has free will. And I'll give you another biblical example of uh, God's sovereign choice. Consider the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. He's got letters in hand that he got from the, the church, the, uh, the, the religious leaders in Jerusalem, the Jewish religious leaders, um, and he's going, these letters give him authority to kill Christians. And he is, is steadfastly opposing Jesus and, and his followers. And um, it says in Acts chapter 9 that, uh, that as he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven and then he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. And so he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And then the Lord said to him, arise, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And so you fast forward, and, and God speaks to a guy named Ananias. And so Saul is, is brought to this place, Ananias is brought to this place, um, and, uh, and Ananias, you know, when God tells him he needs to go, he, he starts arguing with the Lord. He's like, hey, wait a minute, God, let me, I, I don't, I wonder if you know that this guy's actively killing Christians right now, you know? And, uh, and the Lord says to him in uh, Acts chapter 9, verse 15, uh, go, for he is my, he is a chosen vessel, chosen, chosen vessel of mine, to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. And so you've got uh, the, the, the scriptures that's, that teach very clearly God's sovereign and God chooses. And you can't get away from those scriptures. And as well, you have scriptures that teach and examples that teach that man also has a free will. And the Bible teaches that both are true. And so how do we reconcile this? We don't. We don't. Charles Spurgeon basically was asked the same question. How do you reconcile free will and how do you reconcile God's choice? And his answer was, you don't reconcile friends. See, the Bible teaches both. And it reconciles in a higher unity. We can't understand it, but listen, God does. God does. And, and I'm reminded of, of Greg Laurie. Uh, he says, if God was small enough for us to understand, he wouldn't be big enough to handle our problems. Amen? So the Bible teaches both, and just because we fig can't figure it out doesn't mean that it's not true. 
And we have to be careful because the temptation is to either fall down on one side or on the other. And so uh, I'm going to believe election and I'm not going to believe free will. But the problem is that the Bible teaches both. John Stott said this. He said, Scripture nowhere dispels the mystery of election. We should beware of anyone who tries to systematize it too precisely or rigidly. It is not likely that we should discover a simple solution to a problem which has baffled the best minds of Christendom for centuries. So then, so rather than argue between free will and election, we simply accept both as biblical fact. Here's a better question. Why does God elect us in the first place? Why does he elect us in the first place? Well, we go back to uh, Ephesians chapter one, verses four and five. I'll put it on the screen again for you. He, God, the Father, chose us in him, Jesus Christ, before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Now, what we see in these two verses is that God's election serves three purposes, three purposes that Paul talks about here in these verses. Uh, Purpose number one, that we should be holy. God elects us to be holy. Number two, he elects us to be loved by God and to love in return. And thirdly, he elects us to be adopted. Now, first of all, to be holy. Understand, God elects us to be holy. And there's two aspects of holiness, okay? When we talk about your holiness, what is to be holy? Holy means to be set apart to God. Set apart from sin and set apart to God. God himself is holy. There is no sin in him whatsoever. He is totally, completely, and utterly holy. And he has elected us that we should be holy. Now, we are holy in two aspects. We are holy positionally. There's positional holiness. And then there is a thing called practical holiness. All right? Now, Positional holiness, I'm going to give you another doctrine here. This is the doctrine of imputation. The doctrine of imputation. And the idea there is that God imputes righteousness to us. God himself makes us holy. How does he do that? In the person and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's how he makes you holy. Because here's the thing, I'll let you in on a little secret. You're not holy. You are not holy, and neither am I. There is none righteous, the Bible teaches, no, not one. We are all sinners by nature and by choice. The way that we are made positionally holy is that Jesus Christ came to give his life as a ransom for many. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God, not in our works, but in him. See, so, so you're positionally holy when you confess, Lord, I'm a sinner and, and I need washing. I need cleansing. I need to be made right with you. And you know, some of you here today, you need maybe to come to a face-to-face meeting with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm trusting the Holy Spirit to do that work now. Where you come to a face-to-face with the Lord and you, and you basically, you have... You have an encounter with Jesus today where you recognize and confess that, we're, that you're a sinner. The Bible says if we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just 
to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so the idea of being positionally holy is just that. Lord, I'm a sinner and I, and I need to be saved. The Bible says that we are to repent. Now repentance, it just simply means to turn. And what that does not mean is that you say, oh, now I'm going to follow Jesus, so I'm going to do all these good works. I'm going to turn and I'm going to do all of these good things so that I can be made right with God. That's not what that means. What it means is that you turn from your sin and you say, I am a sinner. God, help me. God, save me. I, I, can't, I can't overcome these things. Let's be honest. I don't even want to overcome all of these things. Sin is pleasurable for a season, but the season's always too short and the bill is always too high. And so, so it, it's, a, it's a matter of just saying, I need help. That's positional holiness. Repenting by crying out to the Lord and saying, God, have mercy on me. Forgive me. I'll give you an invitation today at the end of the service to do just that, to confess that you're a sinner to God, to confess that Jesus is the Savior and that you need him to save you. And that the Bible says that if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. We're going to celebrate that today in baptism. Several people are going to get baptized today. And we have people who've signed up. You heard in the announcement today, perhaps you have a come to Jesus moment today. And you haven't signed up for the baptism, but you say, man, I want to be in Christ. Well, listen, when we baptize you, it's an outward sign of an inward change. And what we say to people is, hey, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Old things pass away, and we put them under the water, and we bring them up, and we say, behold, all things become new. What are we doing there? We're identifying with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. We're saying that I need to be made positionally holy. I need to be forgiven of my sins. And Jesus is the only one who can do it. The Lord has in, instituted two sacraments that we are to keep. That's a, 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 a big religious word, $10 religious word, sacrament. What does it mean? Hey, <clears throat> we're to partake of communion on a regular basis. Jesus said, do this often in remembrance of me. What is communion? It's the symbol of his body broken for us and of his blood shed on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. That Jesus suffered and died. For us, what is the sacrament of baptism? It's the symbol that Jesus suffered and died and was buried, but then on the third day he rose again. And when we do this, we are proclaiming, I am no longer separated from God, but I am Christ, I've died, and now I'm positionally made holy. And so God's election serves the purpose to make you holy. Number one, first of all, um, through, uh, through the positional holiness the doctrine of imputation, God imputing to you the righteousness of Jesus Christ, not your own righteousness. And then the second thing, um, well, hey, let me just share a scripture, Colossians 2, 12 and 14. The Bible teaches that everyone in Christ is positionally holy. For you, Paul tells the Colossians, were buried with Christ when you were baptized, right? Just as I've explained. And with him, you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. But then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all of our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us. He canceled your rap sheet, so to speak, and he took it away 
by nailing it to the cross, right? Now, the second aspect of holiness, why were you chosen by God? To make you holy positionally in Christ. But also the second aspect is a practical holiness. And we call this the doctrine, another doctrine, doctrine of sanctification. And the idea here is that when you are sanctified, it means, again, you're, you're setting yourself apart to the Lord, right? And, and what are you doing? You are on a day-by-day basis, you are seeking to grow in your relationship with the Lord. You're seeking to grow obediently to God. So this is practical holiness. This is the outworking of your faith, the doctrine of sanctification, right? And this is where we see the practical outworking, the purpose of our election that Paul outlines in Ephesians 1.4. Remember, and I'll put it back on the screen for you, God's election serves three purposes. To be holy, second, to be loved by God and to love others in return, and thirdly, to be adopted, right? Practical holiness is where we live out and we work out God's love. This is sanctification, This day-by-day growth and outworking of faith. Um, The Bible teaches that God's will is that you and I should be sanctified day-by-day. 1 Thessalonians, that we're in chapter 4. We're going to get to that eventually. Uh, Paul says simply there, this is the will of God for you, your sanctification, right? That you would be made practically holy day-by-day. Uh, Philippians 2.12, Paul said, Dear friends, you always followed my instructions when I was with you, and now that I'm away, it is even more important. Here it is. Work hard to show the results of of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. Some of your translations in that section say, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Not work for your salvation, you're working it out. You're, you're working to grow in the knowledge and the image of the Lord. The Apostle Peter said this, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 3.18, first part of that verse. So this is the idea, is that we are to grow. And the goal is to align our practice with our position. That you align your practice with your position. So, Positionally, you're made holy in Christ, the doctrine of imputation. Practically, you work out your salvation, which is the doctrine of sanctification, right? And, and this is why, or rather, this is what we see Paul commending the Thessalonians for throughout the rest of, of, of this, this first chapter. Read with me. He says, give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. That's verse two, we've read that. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God the Father. Hey, these are the practices that make me know, verse four, beloved brethren, that you're elected by God. And he goes on. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. Hey, we showed up to minister to you guys fresh, after a, uh, fresh off of a beating that we got by the people in Philippi. We showed up black and blue and swollen, and we loved you, and we cared for you, and we nurtured you, and you guys know that. And he says in verse 6, you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction. Hey, they didn't just 
attack us, they attacked you, and you guys were afflicted uh, abundantly. But he says, you received it in that affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Now he goes on. So that, hey, you received it, you've been living out, you've been working out your faith, you've been proving just by the way you live your life that in fact you are elected by God, and you've done this such that, uh, so that, verse 7, you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe, the surrounding towns, you guys live out your faith, they see it, you're an example to them. For from uh, you... The word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place, your faith towards God has gone out. In other words, you have put feet on your faith. You have this this exercise of practical holiness, which has caused you to love God through your obedience and to love others. The Bible says, we love because he first loved us. All traits of somebody who's elected by God, who's saved, and who's living out their salvation, your faith towards God has gone out, so that we do not say anything, for they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. They themselves, they themselves declare, what's Paul talking about here? Well, specifically, what's in view is the people that are in Achaia and Macedonia, and hey, what do they declare? What's their, what's their testimony about, about you Thessalonians? Hey, you're the real deal. You're living out your faith. But you know, you could also argue that uh, certainly what's in view is these people, but their works are in view. Your works themselves prove that you know God, that it's transforming your life. Let me just, just stop myself right there and just ask you, do, you, do your works declare that you know God? Does the way that you live out your faith is, listen, if being a Christian were illegal, would there be enough evidence in your life to convict? That's the question, right? That's the idea. So Paul's saying, hey, it's true in your life, man, you, you have turned to the, tr- to the true God from idols. We could, we could do a whole verse on verse nine, or a whole message on verse nine, turning from idols and turning to the true God. And Paul says, you guys have, and, uh, and he says, verse 10, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So they lived their life with an obedient sanctification of growing in the knowledge and the image of Jesus. And in that fervent living out their faith, they also had a steadfast faith where they were looking expectantly and living expectantly for the return of Jesus Christ. So critically important. Here's the bottom line. They were killing it. These guys are killing it. Now, they're in need of continued growth and maturity, which, which is just the process of sanctification, right? Um, I don't have time for this, but in Colossians chapter 3, I'll just be brief. Um, Paul covers the three major Christian doctrines in just the first 4.1 verses of Colossians chapter 3. He says, if then you were raised with Christ, not if then maybe you are, maybe you aren't. The idea is if then and you are, since you've been raised with Christ is the idea. He says to these, these uh, Colossians, 
Seek those things which are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And then he goes on in verse 5 and he says, therefore. And what does he go on to say? Therefore means in light of, the, of these two things that I've just established. What were the two things that he just established? The two things that he just established was, hey, you're saved in Christ and you're being sanctified day by day, or, or rather, he, sa- he says, you're, you're saved in Christ, and, and you have in your future the, the hope of being glorified together with Christ, but the therefore represents how they're supposed to live out their faith from then on. They're supposed to be sanctified, right? Because a lot of us, our testimony is, I'm saved, and I'm going to heaven, right? And that's what Paul covers in these first four verses of Colossians chapter 3. You're saved, and you're going to heaven. Okay, what about in between? What about the rest of your life? Don't let that be your testimony. I'm saved, I'm going to heaven. Because you've got a long span of years, (laughs) of most of us, between I'm saved and I'm going to heaven. And that's called your life. And your life is to be one of sanctification, growing in the knowledge and the image of the Lord. That's why Paul goes on to say, therefore, because what's he say after that? Put to death. He says there's stuff you got to put to death. He says there's stuff you got to put off. There's stuff that you have to put on. There's stuff that you need to press on in. And this is this attitude, this idea of practical holiness, right? That we live it out. Now, I pointed out that there's three purposes of our election, right? In, in Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5. We see two purposes in Ephesians 1.4 and we see the third in Ephesians 1.5. He chose us, Ephesians 1.4, in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And so the two purposes of your election, number one, to be holy. Number two, to be loved by God and to love God and his people in return, to live, it out, to live out his love, right? Here's the third thing, the third purpose we find in the very next verse, that's adoption as his son, as his daughter. Here's what he says, Ephesians 1.5. Having predestined us, pull the pin, throw the grenade. We'll come back to that word predestined. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Let me clarify what this word predestination means, okay? Election that we've talked about, the idea of election is that God chose you, Okay? Election is that, is that God has chosen you. Predestination is what God has chosen you for. Okay? So, ultimately, what has God chosen us for? Paul says it, Ephesians 1.5. He's chosen us to be adopted as his sons and daughters. We call that the doctrine of glorification. Right? That God has chosen us to be his children to receive and inheritance. First John chapter 3, verse 2 says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Doctrine of glorification, that you will be glorified. Uh, Romans 8, 29. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined, 
there's the word, to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Uh, Again, Colossians 3, 4, and I, and I read to you the whole context of the verse. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The doctrine of glorification. So putting this all together, let's have some application in some questions that I would ask you to write down and take a walk with this week. Okay? The big idea of this text is Paul is saying to these Thessalonians, you're the real deal. You are the elect of God. And I know Paul says to them that you are the elect uh, of God. Why? He says, because you have a work of faith, you have a labor of love, and you have the patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God our Father. And you're watching expectantly for the Lord's return. You're living out a true and genuine faith faith and God has chosen you. So application for us, three questions. Number one, what is the proof in your life that your election is real? What's the proof in your life that your election is real? Question number two, is the word of God sounding forth in faith and works from your life to those who are around you? Is if, you know, if being a Christian was, was illegal, would there be enough evidence in your life to convict, right? Is the word of God sounding forth in the things that you say and the way that you live to the people that, that are in your circles of influence? Um, question number three, are you, li- are you living with an eager expectation of the Lord's return? Because listen, he can come back at any moment. Jesus is coming back. And there is a day coming for all of us when we're going to give an account for our life. What did you do with Jesus? Listen, there's not not a lengthy entrance exam to heaven. You want the the question beforehand? You know, it's 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 for all the marbles, one question on the entrance exam to heaven. Is Jesus Lord? Have you invited him to be your Lord and Savior? 